FOMO. When we think a goal is possible, when we start to get energized to take it on, actually people see changes in researchers can measure changes in systolic blood pressure and heart rate. These are two physiological indicators that people are getting ready to go, to act, to do something. So by using this visual technique, we change our confidence, we change our beliefs, we change our, our, our thoughts about whether we can and want to do this. And when that happens, our body changes as well. Our body literally gears up to take on this challenge that it didn't otherwise think it could. That's Dr. Emily Balchettis, psychology professor at NYU and author of Clearer, Closer, Better, How Successful People See the World. I'm your host, Patrick McGinnis, and this is FOMO Sapiens. With the world spinning out of control, it can be impossible to know what to do and what to miss out on. That's called FOMO, which is short for fear of missing out. How do I know? Because I coined the term, and I'm the world's first FOMologist. And this is the show where I ask entrepreneurial thinkers, people I call FOMO Sapiens, how they live and work with conviction no matter what life throws at them. FOMO. Welcome back to FOMO Sapiens. It's great to be here with you today. And I have to confess something. So I don't know about you, but pandemic has been really lousy for the old social life. However, I have this weird thing that has happened, which is that I actually have kind of a cool Zoom social life. So I've gone to some really cool events. I don't even know how I get invited to these things, but I've been going. And one of the things I do is I go to this thing. uh, It's kind of a big meeting of people online. It's called an influencer event or I guess influencer dinner because they used to actually have a dinner thrown by a guy called John Levy, who's going to come on the show later this season. He's a human behavioral scientist and he brings together a really diverse group of people on Zoom. It's a couple hundred people and it's this mix of people. You'll have like an Olympic athlete, a scientist a political reform activist, an actor. He has Dr. Ruth from, you know, Dr. Ruth Westheimer, the famous sex advice therapist. So all these people get together and John facilitates this conversation. And then we get into small rooms and get to know people a little better. And thanks to all of this, I recently met a woman called Dr. Emily Balchettis, who's a professor at NYU, and she studies motivation and vision science. And so I had never heard of that. We started talking in the in the little room on Zoom, and then we started messaging, we started emailing, and I told her she has to come on FOMO Sapiens because she She studies stuff that's so interesting about motivation and how it's connected to biology. And so I feel like for all of us FOMO sapiens who want to do more, be more, get more things done without going nuts, kind of perfect to understand how we can leverage what she does to do exactly that. And so Dr. Balchettis is an associate professor of psychology at NYU, where her research focuses on people's perception of the world and how their motivations, goals, and emotions influence it, especially with regards to visual perception She is the author of more than 75 scientific publications, that's insane, and her research has been covered by Forbes, Newsweek, Time, Cosmopolitan, Scientific American, and The Atlantic. She's the author of Clearer, Closer, Better, How Successful People See the World. She also has a TED Talk that has gotten almost 4 million views, and we're going to talk about that. It's a really good talk. You should check it out, and that's a lot of views. And so I think the takeaway from this episode, and I hope what you get out of it, is that there's actually a biology brain connection in terms of what we see and what we get done. And so we can make choices that allow us to be more effective as a result. Now, I have a vision for you actually today, if you don't mind, please consider subscribing, giving a rating with stars and sharing this episode or an episode that you like of FOMO Sapiens with somebody who might enjoy the show. So those are three S's, subscribe, stars, and share. Please consider doing so. It would mean so much to me. It helps other people find the show. And now onto the interview. So one of the things that came up with Emily when we were chatting is that actually 
she works in a lab where they study FOMO. And I guess they actually read my book and they have been studying FOMO and doing all kinds of work on the subject. So I was really honored and I wanted to start our interview by asking Emily this question. What is going on in that lab? My research team has studied FOMO. They, they read the book, they experience it themselves, they know about this and they wanted to dig a little bit deeper. And one of the things that they found was just this huge gender effect, actually, in the studies that they conducted. They were looking at, you know, nuances to see, um, you know, does the amount of time that you're on social media contribute to more FOMO? If you if you pull yourself back from it, do you experience it less? And yeah, that matters. But what the biggest effect that they found was that women are experiencing FOMO, you know, far, far more than men are experiencing it or at least reporting it. And I think that opens up a whole host of other questions, which is, you know, is the idea of FOMO, you know, sort of gendered and stigmatized where in the same way that it's, you know, culturally, it's more challenging for men to express a larger emotional profile is FOMO one of those things that they are, they also aren't really allowed to say that they have. So when our research team comes in and asks like, hey, are you experiencing FOMO? Maybe men are, but maybe they're not even allowed to say it, which means, you know, we know that there are huge consequences. You know there are huge consequences of experiencing FOMO. And if men can't even admit um, to others that they are having that problem, you know, then that's going to be two steps further behind that they are for trying to remedy it. You have a TED Talk out there with 4 million views. Tell us about the talk. What is the talk about and why did it go so viral? The talk is really focused on exercise and, uh, you know, that's something we all struggle with. It's a New Year's resolution that hits, you know, the the top billboard top two every single year for the last many decades that anyone has ever looked at what people said as New Year's resolutions. Um, and it's something that we all struggle with. That's why it continues to be a New Year's resolution. And really that TED Talk and decades of my research have been trying to understand why. Why is it that we set these goals that we continue to struggle having success with? The answers are not that we don't care. It's not that we're not trying hard enough. There's there's something else. And that's the something else that we've been looking to answer. Now, listeners to the show know that I don't believe in New Year's resolutions. And in fact, when I try to do something new, I start on the second. So there's no pressure. Um, <laughs> but I want to ask you something. So 4 million views. That's really good. So like a lot of people would think, okay, if I did a TED Talk with 4 million views, I, like I would be like a, a, a household name. And I'm curious, like, did it change your life? Like, what what has it done for you just for folks who maybe want to do this someday? Well, what it's done is given me a broader voice uh, and audience than I would have had otherwise. I mean, that's the whole point of TED Talks, right? It's ideas worth sharing, and they give you that platform to share. And so I'm really grateful for that because I do feel like we have a new perspective to offer on how people can set goals. I, too, don't think New Year's resolutions are a good place to start for a variety of reasons. There's, you know, the expectations are through the roof. We set goals at the wrong level of difficulty. Basically, like all of the ways that you can go wrong, go wrong when we start thinking about them as uh, our goals as New Year's resolutions. So I'm grateful because I had a much bigger audience (laughs) to share these insights that my research team and I have come up with. Um, And opportunity begets opportunity. So that audience grew to a larger audience, including the opportunity to write, you know, a a longer book about about these tactics that can help us uh, overcome the challenges that we experience when meeting our goals. And that book is called Clearer, Closer, Better. And it's about vision science, which is something that you are an authority in. And so I had not heard that term before. So for folks that have not heard of vision science, what is it? 
Well, it's the idea here that what we see is is in, inherently fundamental to what we think and what we do. And the book is really trying to explore a tactic or a strategy that we can implement, a tool that we have at our disposal to help us overcome these challenges that we meet when setting goals, trying to motivate ourselves, seeing them through or changing course when we need to. And the idea here is like we can use our eyes. Our eyes are are freely available for our for our use and disposal. You don't have to pay a monthly membership fee to have access to what we see. And we don't have to invest in, you know, like four years of education to learn how to see differently. It's about, you know, here the book offers four tactics for using our eyes to look at the world in a different way that can help open up possibilities that maybe we didn't know about before when we're trying to figure out how to overcome some problems. So you're talking about like your actual eyes, not like your inner eye or something. (laughs) You're talking about like actually using what you see to become more successful and to get things done, which is I never thought of this idea before. Okay, and like it's it's very it's I, I don't even know what to do that it sounds fascinating and so why don't you give me an example because I I'm not sure I quite get it yet yeah I mean our mind's eye is a thing right what we think about what we can sort of imagine if we're trying to create you know a, a visual in our mind and that's important but that's not what I'm talking about I am as you mentioned like literally talking about what we look at the TED Talk and this whole body of work really started by trying to help people to exercise more efficiently, right? To get more steps in, to go out more often, and to in- engage in more intense activity once they've gotten their shoes on. We did some of this work first by looking at what do Olympic athletes do? Let's start at the top. Let's see if there's something special that they do with their eyes. And can that offer some insight to the rest of us that aren't trying to win a gold medal, but just trying to shed a few pounds or maintain a healthy weight? I went into this thinking, all right, when I interview these guys, some of the world's fastest runners out there, when I ask them, where do you look? I expected that they would tell me, oh, I'm keeping track of where the competition is. Like I've, I've, you know, it's almost like I've got 360 degree vision. I'm always aware of where am I at relative to somebody else so that I can outpace them. I was completely wrong. That's not at all what they do. These guys are telling me, you know, I choose a goal. Often it's a finish line when they're sprinters um, or for others that are long distance runners. It's like, you know, I choose the thing that I can see farthest on the horizon and I just focus on it. It's almost as if they have just, you know, blinders on. They're they're sort of immune to what's on the periphery. They have this narrowed focus of attention, you know, kind of quite literally keeping the their eyes on the prize. And that's the strategy that they use. So we thought like, well, let's test that. Let's see if other people can do that too, can look at the world the way that these Olympic athletes do. And does that help? Does that help them exercise better? So we trained people, you know. Here's this finish line that's in sight right now. Imagine there's a spotlight shining just on that and don't, you know, and disregard what's in the periphery. And we compared that against what they do naturally. We said, oh, you'll see that finish line there. And there's, there's, you know, a bench over on the right, a garbage can off to the left. Just look around the world as you naturally do. When we had people narrow their focus of attention like the Olympic athletes do, we found that they they walked faster. They walked 23% faster, in fact. And they said it took 17% less effort. It hurt less, even though the distance was exactly the same. We didn't change anything about where they were relative to the finish line. We held that constant as experimenters for everybody that we tested. 
So they walked faster, didn't hurt as much. That's great. Now, when we teach them that and then tell them, like, now try it for a week when we're not here, you know, with our stopwatch looking at how you do, what we see is that it's sort of what happens is that it defies their expectations. Like, oh, that first experience, oh, that didn't hurt as much as I thought. So they go out for more walks. And each walk, they take more steps. They go farther and they walk faster. So this strategy is amazing because we found that it works for people who are overweight, who are struggling, who may be like setting this goal for the first in the first place or who have constantly struggled with this, this is a strategy that they can use and they do use and it improves their, their performance. It can help people who are motivated but aren't really sure, like, what can they do to up my game? And because what this change in vision is doing is shaping their psychology. They, they have a sense of confidence now that they didn't before. It's long lasting. So it's helping them to walk farther, walk faster, increase their efficiency by increasing the intensity of the exercise that they do when they're out there. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, or delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you improve efficiency by bringing all major business processes into one platform slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. And with rising prices everywhere you look, you got to do the math and save money. Good news, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head over to netsuite.com slash FOMO. That's netsuite.com slash FOMO. netsuite.com slash FOMO. Tudo bem, meus queridos FOMO sapiens. Now that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages. But I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. As you're talking in, about this, it's, it's interesting. I, I got um, really fell in love with on the Peloton app. They do these guided runs. Have you ever done any of those? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, so you, you know what I'm talking about. Like Rob, Robin Arson, shout out to you. And I would do them uh, all summer long in New York City on the West Side Highway. And one thing that they do a lot when you get into these intense hit runs, you know, this high intensity training is they will tell you to focus on a point down, you know, down the way that you're running for and run towards that point, which I'd never really done before. And I saw you could measure it because, of course, everything's quantified soft. You could actually see how much faster you were otherwise. So you, so I, I've experienced this in my own life. How does one get into this field? You know, is this the kind of thing that you kind of stumbled into? Is this something that um, that that you always wanted to do? Because this seems to like it also blends kind of biology with psychology, if I'm thinking about it right. 
I mean, I'm sure you've seen some of these like, you know, line drawings that could either be an old lady or a young lady, or there's a really great kids book out there now. Um, it's a New York Times bestseller. That's about duck versus rabbit. And, uh, and, and what do you see in that? If you've got kids, you probably have this book on your bookshelf right now. And I just loved those. I loved the art of that. I tried making some myself. I couldn't. I thought I thought I had more talent in art than it became clear that I actually do. And so that's always sort of in my mind, like visual illusions. And now visual illusions are really great for people who study the, the, the vision science. Uh, they can offer insights into the universal structure of how we see and how we put together little lines and bits. And I liked it for that too, but I liked it just for how cool it was. And I just started thinking like, well, what is the practical application of this? Is there any place where these visual illusions actually come into play in, in the real world? And thinking about distance, actually, it is sort of a visual illusion. Now, what we found is that when we teach people to narrow their focus of attention, that induces a visual illusion. That finish line appears closer to people than if they look at the world the way they naturally do. It induces an experience that's not real. It makes that, it draws that finish line in closer to them, almost as if it's, you know, within reach now. Um, and that change and that perception of distance is the thing that triggers all these downstream motivational consequences. That's where the confidence comes from. Oh, it's not so hard to get to that finish line I focused on because it doesn't seem so far away. And when we change our confidence, when we change that feeling of self-efficacy, then our body starts to gear up. When we think a goal is possible, when we start to get energized to take it on, actually people see changes in, researchers can measure changes in systolic blood pressure and heart rate. These are two physiological indicators that people are getting ready to go, to act, to do something. So by using this visual technique, we change our confidence, we change our beliefs, we change our, our, our thoughts about whether we can and want to do this. And when that happens, our body changes as well. Our body literally gears up to take on this challenge that it didn't otherwise think it could. So I can totally see how you use this with physical activity, whether it's climbing a mountain, running, but there's lots of things we want to do every day that require motivation. So take us to a, a kind of another example of how we can use this to be more effective in what we do on a daily basis. Totally. Another challenge that we all, that I mean, like proportionally a lot of people struggle with is saving enough for retirement. You know, some of us might get there, right? We might have enough squirreled away that we can live a nice, uh, you know, nice life in our retirement. But a common denominator is that people start too late in life. You know, if you think back to when you learned about interest rates, the idea of compound interest means that if we start with smaller amounts of saving earlier in life, we actually will have more money later in retirement. Right. That's a nice thing about the way that our banking systems work. But the problem is that none of us start early enough to really take advantage of what compound interest can do for us. You know, if we put away $50 a month starting in our 20s, that actually can take us further than if we started saving $400 in our 40s. Uh, but what? so why don't we do it? Right. The math is there. The numbers are black and white. And, you know, economists or analysts will tell us, like, this is the best way to 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 prepare yourself for a really lovely retirement. So I started asking some of my students, you know, they all had jobs. They were on the brink of graduating just a couple months away. Do you save for retirement? You're in your 20s. This is the time where you should be. You've got you've got money um, that you could use for re retirement. Are you? All of them said no. No one is saving for their for, for retirement when they're in their 20s, at least the 60 that I asked. And I asked them why. And the number one reason was it just seems so far away. 
And that really got me thinking about the exercise studies that we had done and the work that we had done with trying to help people to exercise better. And the answer then also was like, I can't get that far. I can't walk that far. I can't run that far. It seems too far away. So there were some commonalities there with like physical distance that someone would have to walk or run for exercise and temporal distance. The amount of time that separates me in my 20s from me in my 70s when I'll be retired, that distance just seems so far away. It doesn't even seem relevant. So what some really cool work out there has done is look to see, well, how can we contract that sense of distance? And will that change whether people want to invest for retirement? And the answer is yes. So I did this little uh, experiment where I took a picture of each of my students. I morphed that picture of them right now with somebody who is famous but much older, like Maya Angelou, Dan Rather, you know, other, you know, sort of celebrities that are out there, but who had decades on each of my students. Then I showed each person, each student, a picture of what they might look like as they age. What was what will retired you look like? Now, they were all horrified. They had never even thought of themselves as possibly even being able to have wrinkles or white hair. So they saw themselves now. But then I started th- asking them, like, okay, jot down some notes of, like, what will you, this you, do? What would, what would your perfect day look like? They went through that experience. So what they what that did was sort of transcend the here and now. They contracted that sense of, of, you know, that space and that far off distant future me now was brought a little bit closer to current me in their mind, right? This is the mind's eye part, but they visually saw what they could look like in the future. And then I asked them, with your next paycheck, are you going to start saving for your retirement? And 60% said yes. So to me, this little experiment suggested that, you know, that's part of the problem is that that distance to my retired self just seems so big and it makes it seem impossible or irrelevant. But if we can contract that sense of time, then maybe we can see changes in what people are doing. It makes me think, you know, in like a medical setting too, if you were trying to motivate somebody to be healthier, if you took them, you always hear these stories about um, the cop who takes the kid who's maybe abusing drugs and like takes him to jail to see what it's like to experience me in jail. I, I guess it's a similar thing where when you see something and an outcome of a behavior that you're doing or not doing, and then it becomes tangible to you, you are far less likely to dismiss it or not be able to relate to it. Is that is that right? Yeah, exactly. That's another principle that we talk about. If narrowed focus is one tool that we have at our disposal to you know, change how we work on our goals, materializing is a second that I talk about. And that's the idea of taking something that's abstract and making it visual and concrete. Another great example is this, like, think about how you use your calendar. You know, most of us probably put our professional responsibilities in our calendar, like my appointment to chat with you today. That was in my calendar. A meeting with my boss, that goes into my calendar. What are the things that don't make it into your calendar? For me, that's waking up, getting dressed, taking a shower, feeding my son. I have to do that every day, and it takes a ton of time, right? But I don't put that in my calendar. But just this morning, I actually went through that experience. I started to think about, like, how do I really spend my time? I feel stressed, but when I look at my calendar, it doesn't seem like I should be. Like, what's up with that? So I started materializing what my day really looks like. And I accounted for what are the things that I can't avoid? Well, I have to take a shower. I have to make my kid breakfast. He's only four. If I let him do it himself, it would be a disaster. So these are things that legitimately eat away at my time. And if I put them into my calendar the way I put in appointments with my boss, then maybe I could have a more real, realistic sense of what's possible for me to accomplish in my day. Maybe that could help me better calibrate what my expectations for today should look like and that nagging guilt about how come I just can't get anything done, 
you know, maybe that'll temper a bit because there's greater understanding of how I spend my time and I can better allocate it when I'm more realistic about what my day actually presents. So that's the concept of materializing, which is that idea of like, take something that's abstract. What does it look like for a kid who, you know, who, who sees a lifetime with drugs and a cop tries to tell him what that could look like? Well, we can, we can do the same thing for ourselves with how we spend our time. That's very powerful. And, and it reminds me of kind of when people will say like, well, did you ever realize that you spend 23 years of your life on the internet or whatever that is? And you're sort of like, oh my God. So it becomes tangible, materializing. That, that's a term I hadn't heard before. Now there's so much biology here and I'm going to ask a question that I don't, I don't think it's a stupid question, but it might be. And I'm, I'm going to ask it anyway, because why not? If your, if your eyesight isn't as good, then do you have a worse time at these kinds of things? Is there like that connection between having great eyesight and being able to do this stuff? There's really amazing research out there that looks at people who, who have lost their sight or who never had it in the first place. And again, you know, if you think about well, like what's happening in their brain, they don't have vision. So do they not have a visual cortex, the part of their brain that processes visual experiences for other people? No, of course, their brain still has it. Well, what's their brain doing? Like, is that part just sort of dead? Does it die off? No, it's repurposed, which is so cool. They, there's, you know, researchers have looked at, um, have done studies where they take goggles uh, and cover people's eyes for five days. And in a sense, they make them blind. And they're certain that no light is getting in. They can't see anything because there's photoreceptive paper on the inside. So if light got in, then, you know, it would like trigger, trigger the film to indicate. So they know these people never saw anything for five days. They're in a hospital. People are helping them live their life and, and watching to make sure they're safe. And in that time, they try to teach them Braille. These people have never, you know, been able to feel or read Braille before. And in five days, you know, they're not reading Shakespeare, but they can discern letters of the alphabet. And they do fMRI scans to see, well, what's happening in their visual cortex when you take away sight from people who've had it before. And what is so cool is that now that visual cortex, the part of their brain that usually processes stuff coming in from their eyes, is now responsive to, to what they're picking up on their fingertips. It's as if their brain is trying to figure out another way to see, and they're doing it through their fingers. So people who don't have sight, their brains look the same. Every part of it is just as operational but maybe even a little bit more magical because it's repurposing itself to do something that evolutionarily it was never trained to do. The brain is trying to find a way to see and, and they might do it through the fingers or they might do it through sound. They might do it through smell. The other senses get heightened for people who lose the experience of one. And so nobody has any excuses then. We have to, our bodies will adapt. We will find a way, even if you're wearing Coke bottle glasses. So for people who are listening right now and are thinking to themselves, okay, my eyes are open now, both literally and figuratively. What can we do to employ this kind of strategy to, you know, into our old lives? The way I like to think about it is, you know, the narrowed focus, the materializing, two others we haven't talked about yet, framing and a wide bracket. These are tools in a toolbox. We can think of ourselves like, you know, construction workers, if you're building a house, you can't, you're never going to get the job done if you just have a hammer. You're never going to get the job done either with trying to make progress on our goals if you just keep using the same strategy, the same tool. Like maybe that'll get you half of the way if you're lucky, but we need to change up tools to finish the house. We need to change up our tools as we're working on our goals. So I would just suggest when you feel stuck, try something else. 
And the the book in this conversation has suggested a couple other possibilities. When you feel like you're running out of steam and you need an extra push to get over that finish line to close out the last 10% of a project that you never seem to finish up, narrowed focus. That's what's going to help energize us to push us over that finish line. When we're feeling like this just is going nowhere, this is like a sunk cost, I keep doubling down on this, on this project or this line of work, and it's going nowhere and others agree, well, then it's a time to disengage. That's really hard for us to do. How can we see a new way forward then? Well, a wide bracket, taking a step back um, and, you know, like quite literally seeing a forest rather than trees is a way for us to figure out how can we connect where we are to where we want to be, but using a new path. Right. There's some great examples of people that have totally changed their career trajectories um, in a way that might seem like apples and oranges to us, but to them just seems like a different path to get to exactly the same place where I hoped I would be. And they use that sort of uh, wide bracket idea. So try something different. Expand our toolbox. That's what I would suggest. All really good tips. All things that you can start doing today. Dr. Emily Balchettis, author of Clearer, Closer, and Better. Thanks for stopping by. Thanks for having me. This is great. FOMO. Big news. We now have a brand new website. So head over to FOMOSapiens.com where you can listen to past episodes, learn more about the show, and find out how to advertise. Also, head over to Spotify where you can find and follow playlists of the best of the show. You can also connect with me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, and on LinkedIn. I'd love to hear from you, so don't be shy. FOMO Sapiens is recorded in New York City. FOMO. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis and editing and post-production is by Josh Elstrom. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to FOMO. your friends. And as always, you can find me at FOMOSapiens.com and at PatrickMcGinnis.com. To advertise on FOMO Sapiens, reach out to FOMO. contact at FOMOSapiens.com. FOMO. FOMO.